1: Welcome to Global Change Agents with me, Liana Brinded, the Digest Edition, a podcast brought to you by Yahoo Finance UK. You can watch a full version of this interview by heading over to yahoo.co.uk forward slash change agents. Joining me today is Nicola Mendelssohn, CBE, Facebook's Vice President for Europe, the Middle East and Africa and advertising agency veteran, Nicola is now one of the most powerful women in the UK tech. She also sits on the board of drinks giant Diageo. So Nicola, welcome. So happy to be here. Thrilled that you're here with us today. Really would love to know the early years of Nicola. So what was your childhood like? What was it like growing up in Manchester? And of course, the working women in your family, how were they an inspiration to you?
2: Yeah, so so I grew up in the north of England, uh, in Prestwich, Manchester, and actually I had a great childhood. I was very lucky, very blessed. Um, You know, days spent out in the evenings playing in the street with the kids and stuff. And yes, I had these very powerful role models in my life, my mum and my grandma, uh, who both worked, always did. So that was completely my normal. Uh, My grandma worked with my grandfather. They sold fabrics and they had a market stall Uh, And my parents still work together uh, in a catering business. So it was pretty normal for me to see women like that, just getting on with it, you know, juggling, doing all of those things that we all talk about uh, with much more articulation today. But actually, one of the things that I think about now is actually not enough has changed uh, for so many women. And and so many women were not as fortunate as I was to have role models like that. So... Um, in your career, in, in 1992,
1: you joined ad agency BBH, which was a real golden period for the agency. And so what made you decide to go to there specifically, especially since I know my producer does a lot of great background research. She wanted to be an actress. So again, going into creative, what made you go, right, I'm going to start my career in there instead of being an actor?
2: Yeah, so I I mean, I'd I'd always love acting. And I actually, um, I did it the whole way through university. But I actually thought there was too much that was going to be left to luck. And it didn't matter. I saw amazing actors and actresses that were really just unemployed when they came out of uh, drama school university. And I thought, you know what, there's other things that I want. And as I was going through, and I did, I went on this journey of discovery with advertising, which is incredibly creative. And at that time in in the early 90s, I mean, BBH was so exciting, so innovative, so creative, It still is and, you know, they were working on ads for things like uh, Levi's. For those that are my age, they'll remember the uh, the Nick Heyman ad in the laundrette where he took off his clothes and said in 1950s America. And I saw actually the power of persuasion and how people literally were changing their clothes, changing the things they eat. If you could tell a story in a really succinct, with a big idea in a compressed way and The best agency I thought on the planet was BBH, so I did my all to kind of apply. And I was very fortunate to get in on their graduate training scheme when I was 20 years old. Feels like a long time ago. (laughs) And how
1: do you think things have changed in terms of getting into industry? Just a minute ago, you are saying that a lot needs to change still and obviously make it more diverse and inclusive, but also in terms of um, luck. So there is an element of luck, right? How would you say for those who maybe are finding it harder to get into industries, like, let's say, the creative size and ads to get into a graduate trainee programme. How can you kind of not subvert luck, but kind of make it work for you?
2: Yeah, so I think, I mean, the old, the old adage, you work hard to get lucky, I think still holds. And I think we're actually going a bit of full circle because when I joined the industry, it had become, if you like, much more professionalized. The the generation that had gone before me, there were lots of stories of people that had come up through the post room and the ranks and, you know, had found their success that way. And then I think we went through a, a period of you know, we want the people that are university. And let's see where that takes us. And I think now there's a much greater acceptance, actually, especially across the whole of the creative industries, not just advertising, that actually what we need is diversity of thinking. And that comes from diversity of backgrounds, uh, race, religion, social economic. And so there's now much more and many, a much more kind of appreciation of let's go and find people from different places, different areas, and not just the university graduates. And I think the rise of apprenticeships, re-emergence re- of that, I think, is a really good thing. So work bloody hard, uh, don't take no for an answer, and perseverance will pay off. And then when you're there, that's, then it's up to you. Then you've got the runway to do what you need to do.
1: Now we want to talk about when you joined Facebook in 2013. How did that come about? Did, uh, did someone reach out to you? Was it somewhere that you really wanted to go to? Like, how did that trajectory happen?
2: So, um, yeah, it wasn't something I was looking for at the time. I um, I had my own business, Karma Rama, and it was growing really nicely. And it, I was also uh, the president of the IPA, the Institute of Practitioners in Advertising, the UK's trade body. And my whole mission and agenda had been about digital. And I'd always been interested in, in digital. So I was actually really uh, early adopter of Facebook. I was in a, on year three. And I remember... Um, Campaign magazine r- ran an article, must be like 10 years ago or something, where they said, you know, Nicola Mendelsohn, has got so many friends on Facebook. I think I had 147 at the time, like a <laughs> pioneer. So I wasn't looking. And then I, a lady called Carolyn Everson reached out and said, I'd love to have a cup of coffee with you. Uh, would you be free? And I said, that'd be lovely. Yeah, love to talk to you. She was running um, uh, sales globally at, at Facebook. And she came in and she's American and China just gets to it. And she came in straight off and she went, I'm here to talk to see if you'd like to be um, the head of EMEA. And I literally splurted my coffee out. I was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then the conversation uh, moved very quickly from there on in. So... Over the last six
1: years, obviously, it has expanded. Like you said, it's like really growing fast. But surely there must be some pain points, right? When you are starting from small and growing and growing and growing, there must be some teething points when it comes to, I don't know, whether it's staffing or whether it's like
2: overall goals. Does that change at all? Yeah, of course. And I mean, there's, there's been no secret of the fact um, that it's been a very difficult and challenging last couple of years for us as a, as a company where, you know, the responsibility that we have bringing so many people, you know, we now connect uh, 2.7 billion people across the planet together. And there's no question that we, you know, mistakes have been made along the way. But, and so that's changed that, that sense of responsibility and also where we make investments. That, that's been a very significant step change for us as a company about how we protect people's information, how we protect elections, uh, how we get rid of bad content on the platform. Uh, yeah, that's, that's very much different to where we were six years ago.
1: Okay, so one thing that we'd really love to know is, like, what is your day-to-day like? Because we've talked about the company, we've talked about your background, and obviously all the great things that you do, but, like, what what does day-to-day look like for you when
2: you're head of EMEA? So- I mean the answer will probably reflect why I love my job so much is no two days are ever the same uh, I get to travel a lot across the region uh, I visit the different countries I meet with the teams internally I can meet with politicians I can meet with the media I could obviously meet with our clients uh, the advertisers from the very biggest companies in the world to the smallest companies in the world through a lot of the work that we do through programs like the she means business program also, I'm meeting with uh, community leaders. So honestly, no two days are ever the same. And that's what I love because it plays to my love of people, the, always learning. Uh, yeah, and that's one of the areas.
1: Well, one thing that I'd love you to talk about is the incredible roster of things that you do to empower women, um, whether it's on around International Women's Day, but all the other initiatives too, externally and internally. So could you talk a bit about those as well and maybe throw in some, how has it become actionable for all the events that you do?
2: Yeah, so... I've always felt it's really important that you've got to help other women. Um, it's just been in my DNA from being, being a young child that, that that's what you do. You always give back. That was one of the things my parents taught me. And, you know, the generation of women that sort of came before me, they had a really tough time and they often pulled the ladders up. And I never wanted to be that person. And I absolutely agree with you that it's all very well doing events and doing nice talks, but actually it has to come down to action. You want to really actually see, you know, the change. So so we run incredible training courses at Facebook. We do things on managing inclusion, managing bias, unconscious bias training. We run programs for the men because they want to help. So we have a Be the Ally training as well. And that does make a difference. We hear time and time again of people giving me the feedback back saying, without that training, I wouldn't have done X, I wouldn't have done Y. And especially around recruitment, I think that's where it can make a really big difference. We've been running for the last few years now program across EMEA called She Means Business, which is actually all about empowering this next generation of female entrepreneurs to give them the skills, to build networks with them, to give them the role models. I'm really proud that we've trained 50,000 women so far. We're not done, there's a lot more that we need to do. And we're constantly talking to them about what do you need? What more help can we give to you? And we create the programs accordingly in in collaboration with lots of other organizations as well, because this one's gonna take all of us uh, to come together.
1: Well, I think it's really interesting that you brought up the training for being an ally, because especially when it comes to diversity, inclusion and belonging in companies right now, it's almost like we've hit another part of the circles, like how can men be more involved? Because especially a lot in leadership, they're the decision makers. But when you've been running these events and training programs that maybe are not be the ally, but um, other ones, how do you see participation? Because one of the hardest things is getting men in the room to talking about, diversity, and inclusion rather than something separate, right?
2: Yeah. So we, we haven't made them mandatory, but I'm really happy that the numbers are in the 80s and 90s in terms of the participation rates across these different numbers. And I think if you create an environment, goes back to your culture question, whereby people can feel comfortable bringing their authentic selves to work, where they feel comfortable being open enough to say, I'm not sure what the right language is here. I'm not sure if I'm part of the problem. That is a place and that sort of language is welcomed and received. So that's the thing that I would say, because so many people were we're the products of so many things and peeling back the onion of who you are actually can help you answer so much of this. And bias, we have bias for good reason of old. You know, when we were kind of primitive, we needed to kind of hear the instincts to go, is that something, a threat, a problem, an issue? But that's not what we need in 2019. You know, we need different things now. We need to overcome those old fashioned tendencies and really embrace because that will get you the best results um, and actually give you a more fulfilled life. And there's um, so much research on this, so much research that says that companies that are more diverse will just do better. So if people are interested in data and numbers, my goodness, you can find so much out there there's so much more we can go. So this year we've, we've declared that we want to get to 50-50. That's where we want to get to. And, you know, with the right processes in place, we will get there. So it, it takes each of us, it takes every single hiring manager that when they're looking, that making sure that they, they are looking at diverse slate approaches. You've got to hire the right person. That's still important. But you've got to start from a position where you have the representation there, then you can make a choice. Do you find there's like key challenges that come to um, not
1: implementing these initiatives, but I suppose people adopting it when you branch out into different areas? So naturally, Facebook is now going out into cryptocurrency and blockchain, and obviously it's got uh, Libra. Um, so when it comes to growing to scale, having new staff, is there any other kind of diverse initiatives to try and make sure that you get those people in for the job in...
2: Yeah, of course, you want to bring in the right experts to take on the right roles. But I think, you know, part of the type of person that you that you that is attracted to work at a tech company is a a person that's always learning and is always hungry to do different things. Uh, The work we're doing on artificial intelligence, how that works in so many different ways, whether it's from a content regulation perspective, where we can actually, you know, we're taking down stuff before, even bad stuff, before people even see it on the platform. And we're getting better and better at doing that. But we're using similar technology to also empower uh, visually impaired people to be able to be told what the things are that are in the in the photographs and so many other more uses of technology like that. I mean, that gets me very excited.
1: Yeah, especially on the AI side and especially over the last couple of years, there's been a big focus on making sure that people behind AI are just as diverse so then biases don't get programmed in. Um, some companies that I've spoken to go, oh, we, we put in a quota to make sure that when we build our AI stuff, we're going to have staff that are across different uh, factors so that the AI is as organic and representative as possible. Is there anything like that? with? Yes,
2: very, very much so. Um, So we have uh, a a visually impaired team and that's actually headed up by uh, a blind engineer. I think it gives us a totally different perspective. A guy called Matt King, he's superb. We also have, we, we just have a consciousness around this area because it is a responsibility. So one of our teams that was working on um, Portal, which, um, you, you know, Portal. So uh, she actually became aware that it, we, because of how it had been programmed, that it was training more um, on white men. So that was a a very early prototype, so we could make those changes. And again, it's just a good reminder to keep making sure that the teams are building are reflective of the people um, that are using the products around the world. So we keep testing ourselves and holding ourselves to that. Getting back to the personal side, um,
1: I know this is a um, hard topic, but you've also, um, as an executive, going through all these things, at the same time you had a cancer diagnosis. Uh, about a year ago and then um, your are in um but it's still a journey. Can you talk about that and also how maybe that shaped you in your life, whether it's
2: work or at home? Yeah, so um, so I, I was actually diagnosed, it's now nearly two and a half years ago, with uh, a blood cancer called follicular lymphoma, which nobody has ever heard of. Um, and it's an incurable blood cancer. And it's I mean, it was that weekend was without question because I was a bit in limbo. We didn't know what it may or may not have been and was without question um, the, like the worst weekend of my life. And what I what I learned and the journey that I've been on is not all cancers are the same. You know, you hear straight away, right, you've got to go beat it and you've got to have a treatment. And you've and that wasn't necessarily the case with this one. And so I guess I went on a journey of learning and understanding. And so they watched, and you do this thing called watch and wait, where they literally watch you um, over a period until the point which which they think you then need treatment. And some people can go years with this cancer for that, and some people can be the next day. Um, for me, I was able to go about 18 months with it uh, before I needed treatment, which I did last summer. And I had to have um, chemo and immunotherapy, which was not, I mean, terrific. horrific. Um, but it, um, I was lucky in that I was able to um, kind of much, pretty much function because not all chemo is the same either. Not all cancer is the same. Not all chemo is the same.
1: Mm.
2: And um, I was able to work through. I had great support and I was lucky and I had great doctors. And I, you know, now this is part of me. I mean, I'll continue to be monitored. I feel well. I feel good. But um, one of the things that was the most helpful for me was actually, there's a group on Facebook called Living with Follicular Lymphoma, about 5,500 people. And they, they are my best source of advice and inspiration and sounding board when I'm just going, has anyone ever had? And we share deeply personal things with one another because we're there to help help one another. So yeah, in terms of, has it changed me? Yes, I mean, of course, a diagnosis like that does. I was always grateful. I'm probably even more grateful. Um, I definitely take better care of myself in terms of the diet. It does make a difference, by the way. Um, the, the you know the, I never did exercise. I ate loads of sugar, and I, I don't do those things in, in the same way. But I do exercise now, a bit. Sounds <laughs> like. <laughs> as once a week that's fine right maybe (laughs) twice if I'm doing well and so this has
1: been such a fantastic conversation um but we're nearly out of time so I've got a couple of quick fire questions for you okay that I can wrap up on um so first of all in the morning when you wake up and you reach for your phone what's the first app you check not
2: Facebook no but it is (laughs) (laughs) and if it's not Facebook it's Instagram okay I get that yeah yeah, big Instagram fan.: I obviously. love them both. yeah, it's like children. I love all my
1: children equally. <laughs> Good answer. And lastly, how do you celebrate a win? Whether it's a career win or a personal win, How do you celebrate?
2: Oh, just with a great big smile actually, there's definitely been also a little bit of retail therapy that's gone along the way as well, I have to say. What's your choice of retail <laughs> therapy?: or, like, <laughs> I'm very, I like my clothes awesome. I do.
1: Well, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Global Change Agents with me, Leanna Brinded, produced by Yahoo Finance UK. A full version of this interview can be found at yahoo.co.uk forward slash changeagents. And for more information, go to uk.finance.yahoo.com.